Good morning. Thank you, Jeff, for doing such a wonderful job this morning leading singing, and uh, I think he might have found himself a new job, and so we welcome you to your new vocation of uh, song leading, and, and certainly are grateful for you uh, signing up and doing that this morning. And it's good to see everybody this morning, and I first want to say thank you for the kind words and uh, the outpouring of love that was expressed to, to my family and I over this last week and the loss and tragedy of losing our, my brother-in-law. Uh, and he was my brother-in-law for almost 30 years. And uh, so I will miss him greatly and, and prayers for my sister and for my niece and nephew. And so today I can't help but to talk to you from that place, and, uh, and so today I will attempt to talk from this place of bereavement, and I hope it will be beneficial to you, but I'm also mindful, too, of that tragedy that happened in Pittsburgh, and it's just a shame and a moral outrage that we live in such an enlightened age to see people who are doing needless acts of violence in the name of hate and racism. And so I just want to pray for those victims uh, this morning. If you will join me in a word of prayer. Lord, words cannot express the sorrow that we feel in our hearts this morning for our, our Jewish neighbors. And Father, we don't understand the level of hate that was demonstrated. And Father, we just pray... For those victims, we pray for their families, we pray for that community, that you would bless them with unity, that you would bless them with freedom, that you would bless them with courage. And Father, help us to support one another, help us to love each other, help us to love our neighbor as ourselves. And Father, we just pray that we will contribute to the conversation this week to end that kind of racism and that kind of hate that is so needless. Help us to bear one another's burdens today. And we pray in your beautiful Son, Jesus' holy and divine name. Amen. Amen. So today, if you got your Bibles, turn to John 11. And John 11, and it's quite a remarkable story that we're going to look at today in John 11. And it's a long narrative and it's interesting to look at the way in which John presents the ministry of Jesus because he presents seven miracles. And what he calls them in the book of John is signs. And in the book of John, the Gospel of John, you have seven signs that are presented that show the divinity, the deity of Jesus Christ, that he is indeed the Son of God and that you can truly believe in Him. And it's interesting because when you look at these miracles, and when you look at the ministry of Jesus, it begins with a wedding in Cana, in John chapter 2. And then the last sign is at a funeral. The first sign begins in joy, and then the last sign begins in the greatest depths of sorrow, 
And in fact, you could even say that Jesus misses the funeral. But that is where his last sign is presented in the book of John. And and so his ministry touches every part of people's lives. There's not a part of his teaching that doesn't impact some part of your life. In fact, every part of your life. Jesus needs to be at your wedding. He does. If Jesus isn't at your wedding, then let me tell you, the marriage afterwards is going to be a lot tougher. The other day, in fact, yesterday, I had a good friend of mine. He was talking to me. He's talking about getting married. And he kept asking everybody, is it true? Happy wife equals happy life? I said, yes, of course. And then another kid, he was unmarried. And he said, well, I just don't think that's fair. I think it should be us, happy us. And I said, well, let me put it this way. Unhappy wife means unhappy you. And if you don't understand that, you will. And he said, well, I want to start a movement. And I want to say it's happy us. And I said, well, let me tell you, your movement will end at the altar. Because you will understand happy wife equals happy life. But not only do you want Christ to be in your marriage and at your wedding, but let me tell you, you want Christ at your funeral too, don't you? And that's what we find that Jesus needs to be in every part of your life, in every facet. And that's what we find in the Gospels, especially the Gospel of John. And so these signs, these miracles are here to produce, to nurture, to cultivate soul-saving faith. And in fact, John, in John 20, 30 and 31, he says this, And truly, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of His disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life in His name. Life. That's what John And Jesus wants you to have. And it's only through faith and it's through these signs that God is proving who Jesus is. But so many times in life we have to go through death, don't we? We're confronted with death. We don't want to be around it. I didn't want to spend my time in a funeral home this past week. I didn't. But it's a reality that all of us must face, isn't it? And first of all, we have to face that our own mortality, our own death. Hebrews says it is appointed unto man once to die, but after this the judgment. And that death is the separation of the body from the spirit, it says in James chapter 2, 26. There's a story about a king in Persia who had a servant. And he went to the market one day, and he went to the market, and while he was at the market, he encountered death. And so he came back to the king, and he begged the king, he said, I've encountered death, give me a horse, the fastest horse, and I'm going to escape, and I'm going to Tehran. The Persian king gave him the fastest horse in the stable, and the man took off. Then later on that evening, the Persian king encountered death. And he said, why did you surprise my servant so? And he said, well, I was actually surprised to see him because I have an appointment with him tonight in Tehran. We can't escape it, can we? 
the fastest horse, the fastest car, the biggest bank account, the nicest clothes, the biggest house, whatever it is, will not escape death. And then, if that's not enough, if death for ourselves is not enough, the harder part is when we have to lose someone we love. And a lot of us would rather meet death than to have one of our loved ones meet death. Isn't that right? And then there's that bereavement. There's that grief that you can't even articulate because we lose people we love and we, we take people for granted, don't we? We do. We take people for granted. I look at people and I say, well, I need to spend time with this person because... I know they don't have a lot of time left, so I'm going to put my attention and my time on them only to lose someone I didn't think about losing. We take them for granted. We take people for granted every day. And then we face the the reality that guess what? We love people more than we think we do. You do. There are people right now in your family. There are people right now in your community. There are friends. There are co-workers who you love more than you think you do. And you're only confronted with that love when they are in absence and removed. And also you find out in losing someone you love is that their life and who they are are so much bigger than your little judgments of them. Oh, we have our judgments, don't we? We think we got people figured out. We think we know people. We've got all kinds of names and things we think about people. But guess what? They're bigger than those judgments. They're more important than those judgments. And we face that when we lose them. And we also find out that we have unfinished business with people we love. Things that were left unsaid. We have unresolved feelings for that person. But if we put our faith in God, we find out that God is greater than we ever imagined. That God is a God of comfort beyond all comfort. Describing grief is very difficult. There's a a book that C.S. Lewis wrote, A Grief Observed. And it's when he lost his wife, Joy. And in fact, the book is so honest, so brutally honest, so transparent that when they first released the book, they put another person's name on it. Because they didn't want to show that this was the feelings, this was the heart of loss that C.S. Lewis had. He said, "Her her absence is like the sky spread over everything. Think about that. He goes on to describe grief as this. No one ever told me that grief felt so like fear. I'm not afraid, but the sensation is like being afraid. The same fluttering in the stomach, the same restlessness, the yawning. I keep on swallowing. At other times, it feels like mildly drunk or concussed. There's a sort of invisible blanket between the world and me. I find it hard to take in what anyone says or perhaps hard to want to take it in. It's it's so uninteresting. Yet I want the others to be about me. 
I dread the moments when the house is empty. If only they will talk to one another and not to me. Grief. And in this story, in John 11, we find Jesus dealing with grief. And you find the shortest verse in the English Bible. It's not in the Greek. But a short verse that has such profound importance to all of us. And it's simply Jesus wept. Jesus cried. Jesus expressed sorrow at the loss and the bereavement and the grief that He saw and felt in others. But look at John 11 with me. And the first thing that we find is, is that number one, love defined the life of Jesus. Love defined it. Look at chapter 11, verse 1. Now, a certain man sick Lazarus of Bethany in the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary who anointed the Lord with the fragrant oil and wiped His feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. Therefore the sisters sent Him, saying, Lord, behold, He whom you love is sick. Then in verse 5 it says, Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. You see, Jesus was a person who loved. And because of that, everybody expected something out of Him. They were ready for Jesus to do something. They wanted Him to show up and change things. But love was demonstrated every day in Jesus' life. Can you imagine being the friend of Jesus? The generosity, the care, the affection that He showed to His disciples and to those He loved. We see the importance of friendship. Jesus wasn't some lone guy walking in a desert saying wise things. No, He was surrounded by people. Why? Because He loved And that's how Jesus calls us to live. To live in community. To live in family. To live as friends. Ecclesiastes 4.9 says it best, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But that love motivated him to do something different. It, It motivated him to demand justice for those who were hurting, for the poor, the downtrodden, the innocent, those who abused power. He rebuked. He cared for the orphan, the widow, the stranger, the lost, and He cared for the weightier matters of the law. That's who Jesus was. Why? Was it because He wanted to be a political figure? Was it because He wanted to be a TV star? Or a musician? No, it's because simply He loved. He loved. Name is 524, but let justice run down like water and righteousness like a mighty stream. We also see in the life of Jesus this love demonstrated in the thing that's so hard for us to do. It's forgiveness. Because you can't have a relationship for very long until you're going to have to forgive. Right? If you go through life and you don't forgive anybody, then you're not going to have anybody standing beside you. Because it's simply a part of how we have to live with one another. You have to forgive. And Jesus was the best at forgiving. 
He looked at that paralytic and he says, before he healed him, before he gave his legs back, he said, thy sins are forgiven thee. He said to us in the Sermon on the Mount, if you remember that you have aught with your brother and you come to the temple with your, your gift to God, and you remember that you have a problem with your brother, lay that gift down and go get right before you come to the altar. Why? Because of love. And forgiveness is a part of that. We also see in Jesus His selflessness. That He thinks about others. He puts others before Him. Greater love hath no man than this, than to lay down His life for His friends. And here Jesus is showing His love to those who are sick, to those His friends, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. But how does He do it? Well, number two, we have to keep in mind that the purposes of God lead the life of Jesus. And so He does everything different than we do. And we find that out. Look at verse 4. And this is the key to the story because this sickness, He says, Jesus says, is not unto death but for the glory of God that the Son of God may be glorified through it. There was a deeper purpose that Jesus saw even in the death of Lazarus. But for the glory of God. And He says what? Glorified what? Through it. That's tough, isn't it? Because in my life, when I see tragedy, when I see pain, when I see bereavement, I want to go around it. Or best of all, I don't even want to go through it. I'd rather stay right here. But Jesus says, through it, the Father is glorified. We must live with the intentionality that Jesus lived because ultimately, nothing that Jesus ever did was an accident. It wasn't a matter of coincidence. It was a matter because it was God's will he wants us to live in that way. We are His workmanship created in Christ Jesus. What? For good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has prepared for us to walk in good works with each other. We also see a strange relationship with time in verse 6. Because look what happens in verse 6. So when he heard that he was sick, he stayed what? Two more days. We live in a time where when we hear something bad is happening, what do we do? We jump in the car and we go. When I got the bad news this week, I jumped in the car and I was in at my sister's house as quickly as I could. But here we see Jesus' strange relationship with time because He was not limited by it. He's the author of time. Time is about change, and Jesus could do whatever He needed with time. And ultimately, He can do anything with death, we find out. And ultimately, He's put within our hearts a yearning for eternity. Even though we live in the chains of time, it says in Ecclesiastes 3.11, He has put eternity in our hearts that's why we're always yearning for something more. That's why this life never quite satisfies is because you weren't made for this time. You were made for eternity. 
The love of God defines Jesus' life. The purposes of God lead Jesus' life. And then number three, the knowledge of God is revealed in the life of Christ. And what we find here, look at verses 9 and 10. He begins to talk about going to Judea, to going to this place where Lazarus is. And, And they say, well, don't you remember, Jesus, that the people down there in Judea want to stone you? They want to kill you. But listen to what he says. Are there not twelve hours in a day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of this world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. What is he saying? That people need the light. That people need the truth. That people need the knowledge of God. And that's my sole purpose. That's the reason why I'm here is to give light to the world. And that's what Jesus' life is giving light and illumination to the world. That's why the truth is so important in Jesus' life. He said, I came to bear witness of the truth. If anyone hears my words there of the truth, and we see an interesting thing here, Jesus says plainly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. The news is levied onto the disciples. He's dead. Jesus knows. It's no mystery. He doesn't need another messenger. He knows what happened to Lazarus. And here Thomas, who often is overlooked and talked about as doubting Thomas, look what he says in verse 16. Then Thomas, who was called Didymus, said to his fellow disciples, let us all also go that we may die with him. Talking about Jesus. A lot of times when we talk about Thomas, we talk about what he did in John chapter 20. Later in John, when he doubts, but here you see the courage and the faith because he knew that if if Jesus goes to Judea, all bets are off. The knowledge of Jesus was revealed in his life. But then we find, lastly and most importantly, that Jesus has the power of life. And in fact, that power of life is in his life. Verse 21 sounds kind of familiar. Where Martha meets Jesus and she says this, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Sometimes we feel like that, don't we? Where is God in all this suffering? Where is Jesus? Why didn't He stop it? And we we argue with God sometimes. And we see this in the story. And Jesus doesn't rebuke her, but tells her the truth. Your brother will rise again. Martha said, I know that He will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus says this, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in Me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in Me shall never die. Do you believe this? And of course she says yes. Then Mary comes to Jesus. And we see the same thing happening. Look at verse 32. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw Him, she fell down at His feet saying, Lord, if You had been here, my brother would have not died. Jesus was there all along, wasn't He? 
He may have not have been there in bodily presence, but he knew the situation that was happening to Martha and Mary. And then we find the sadness. Because without Christ, and Martha and Mary know this, there's only death. There's only death. There is no answer. And for most people, they see death and they see the graveyard and they see the urn. And that's it. That's the end of the show. That's goodbye. But Jesus says over and over again, no, that's not the end. I am the resurrection and the life. And what we see, Jesus goes to the tomb. And He says in verse 40, Did I not tell you that you're going to see the glory of God even in this darkness, even in this sadness? And He says in verse 43, Lazarus, come forth. Think about that moment. How remarkable that moment is. For those who have been in funeral homes and those who have worked in clinical settings, when you see someone who has expired, there's no plans of them getting up, is there? There's no hope of that person getting up. And that is the way in which the world views death and they can't help it. But with Christ, we see the power of God and the hope of God. That that's not the end. And Lazarus comes forth and it says, loose him and let him go. Because Christ has ultimately come here to this earth to free us from death, sin, and suffering. And this is just one example of His power over death. And eventually we know that Christ was raised from the dead Himself never to die no more. But ultimately we must understand that life is in Him. It's nowhere else. Life is not in a bottle of vitamins. Life is not in some medicine. I'm sorry. Life is not in some retirement plan. Life is not in some hospital. Life is in Christ. That's the only place. There's a unique story I heard about a doctor who was performing a heart surgery. And I'll try to wrap it up for you. He's performing a heart surgery in El Salvador. And he's about 12 hours into the surgery. And the boy begins to lose so much blood in that surgery that he's about to die. And they tell the doctor the boy has B-negative blood, which only about 2% of the population has. And they don't have any more blood. That's it. And then the doctor tells him, well, actually, the surgeon tells him, that's my blood type. And the doctor takes about a 20-minute break from this 12-hour surgery, goes over, has his blood drawn, and eats a Pop-Tart, and then comes back and completes that surgery where that boy lives. You say, well, what's the point? Life was in the doctor himself, wasn't it? 
It wasn't just in the surgery. It just wasn't in the knowledge. But it was in the doctor himself. And just as there was life in the doctor, there is life in Christ. It's in his blood. It's only in his blood. And if you don't know Christ, you don't know eternal life. Because that's the promise, that's the gift that Jesus is offering. Not just for you to be good, which He can make you good. Not just for you to have a great marriage, which He can make you have a great marriage. But to have life. That's who Jesus is. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And the reason we believe on Him is not because we're going to die, but because we're going to live. That's the hope in Christ Jesus. In the darkest tomb is a light with Christ. If you have never named Jesus as your Savior, never obeyed the Gospel, there's no better day to do that than today. To believe. Why? Because Jesus taught in such a way, taught such truths. He also showed signs of His power and demonstrated His divinity, His power over death, His power over nature, to confess Him to be the Son of the living God, to repent of sins. Except you repent, you shall all likewise perish. To confess Him to be the Son of the living God and to be baptized into His death, burial, and resurrection. And in those moments and in your life, bereavement is still there. Grief is still there. But there is a light that no one or no sorrow can ever take away. And that's the light of Christ. If you have not obeyed Him, then we want to give you that opportunity today. Or if you need prayers of healing or encouragement, we want to sing this next song to encourage you. So if you have any need, won't you come now as together we stand and as we sing.